Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In 2017, the world's first sex doll brothel opened its doors. Since then, several others have opened up in major cities around the world. Every time a new sex doll brothel opens, it generates a huge wave of media articles. Many of them have focused on the difficulties these businesses seem to have in staying afloat, because it almost seems like every time a new one pops up, another one shuts down. These brothels exist in a legal gray zone, and a lot of governments don't want them around which makes it tricky not just to set up shop, but to actually stay in business. So what is a sex doll brothel actually like? Who visits these establishments? What are they looking for? And how much does it cost? And will sex doll brothels eventually replace in-person sex work in the future? We're going to talk about all of these questions today and more. We're also going to give you a sneak peek at a very unique sex doll brothel in Berlin, where customers can pay to have sex with a doll, while a human sex worker provides the doll's voice in real time to interact with the client and make their fantasies come to life. I am joined once again by Dr. Kenneth Hansen, an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Wyoming in the Department of Criminal Justice and Sociology. Using qualitative and mixed methods, his work has examined social issues related to artificial intelligence, sexuality, emotions, and sex toys. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers 20 certification options in areas including medical sexology, kink, neurodiversity, and LGBTQIA affirmative therapy. They also offer a PhD program in clinical sexology that can be completed in two years and meets all ASEC certification requirements. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to fit your schedule. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archive workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Okay, Ken, let's talk about sex doll brothels. Just before this interview, I looked one up online, and it's called Cybrothel, and it's located in Berlin. And I was actually just in Berlin to teach a study abroad course on sex and culture, and I had no idea that this brothel was there. So now I have to go back because I really want to talk to the people who run it because I am utterly fascinated by it. So as a starting point, let me ask you to just paint a picture for us. What does a sex doll brothel look like and how is it different from a traditional brothel? Well, let me just preface this by saying that side brothel is a very special case of sex doll brothels. I think that the usual way in which people imagine a sex doll brothel is it looks something like a hotel or a motel and there's all of these different rooms with a doll that's inside of it and the patron goes in they pay a negotiated fee they go into the room they get to use the doll they leave and then some employee cleans it and preps it for the next person It's similar to another brothel with humans where people would go in, there would be sex workers available, person pays the fee, they have their services, and they move on. 
Cyberothel is a little bit different in that it's one room and they have multiple dolls. And so people have to schedule somewhat far in advance and which doll they want. And then there's the analog AI experience, which I imagine we'll talk about in more detail later. But so that adds a new element to Cyberothel that other sex doll brothels wouldn't have because there's no AI experience at all. Yeah, so a typical sex doll brothel is similar to an in-person brothel, just without that, you know, sort of interpersonal interaction element to it, where it's just a doll. Um, Some of these dolls might also have a robotic component. There might be some voice involved. But in the case of Cybrothel, it's kind of that hybrid version. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment, where you do have that interaction with the doll, but there's also that human element or component to it, which makes it very unique among sex doll brothels. Now, the first time I ever heard about a sex doll brothel was about five years ago. And I think that one was in Toronto and it was getting all of this international media coverage because it was going to be the first sex doll brothel in North America. So this is a pretty recent phenomenon. You know, we haven't been talking about this for a very long time, but I'm curious as to whether we have any sense of how common these establishments are, where around the world do they exist? You know, what do we know about prevalence of these brothels and where they're located? Yeah, you know, it's a difficult question to assess empirically because it seems to be a bit of like playing whack-a-mole where one brothel pops up, it gets a lot of attention, and there's kind of a culture lag where there's no real legislation that says it's illegal to have a sex doll brothel. Legislators have to rally around that point, write some sort of bill, and then boom, it gets shut down. And then another one pops up somewhere else. So I've seen them pop up and fall in Canada, the one that you mentioned. Uh, There was one in Spain and Barcelona. There have been a couple in... South Korea and Japan, uh, and now Cyberothel in Germany. So it seems that at any point in time, there might only be one or two per country, but worldwide, we're talking maybe a half a dozen or so. Yeah, so definitely aren't a lot of them, at least not yet, but they do have this way of kind of opening and closing. I think that's true of a lot of other sexual establishments in general, because as you mentioned, you know, that legal landscape can shift after you open a business and it might create new laws or there might be new permitting issues and that can get you shut down. And so sometimes it's about moving and relocating to a friendlier area. So yeah, there's all kinds of interesting legal questions around all of this. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later because, you know, these sex doll brothels kind of fall in this gray zone between traditional forms of sex work and then sex toys. And, you know, the legality of that can sometimes fall into question in some places. So that's a whole other factor to discuss here. But let's go back to Cybrothel. You published a study about this as a case report, and I found it to be fascinating on several levels. And one is that, as we mentioned, it's kind of this hybrid form of sex work where you have a client who's physically interacting with a doll, but you have a human sex worker in another room who's providing the voice for that doll. And as I was reading that, it got me thinking about some media articles I've read about sex workers who are against doll brothels, in part because they think it's going to put them out of business, or it's going to teach their clients bad behavior because when it's a doll, they can do whatever they want. But this is a really unique setup at Cybrothel, where there's still a job for sex workers that can actually provide them with a lot more safety on multiple levels, 
while also creating an opportunity for them to promote consent and healthy behavior by guiding the interaction. So what did you learn by speaking with a worker who actually voices the dolls? You know, what was her experience like in terms of working at Cybrothel? Yeah, so, you know, as someone who worked at Cybrothel and had also been a sex worker previously, um, in the more traditional sense of being an escort, she really believed that Cybrothel was an exciting opportunity to take the sex doll brothels in a direction that's actually building on sex workers' experiences, using their knowledge, and incorporating that into the business rather than just men trying to make a quick buck, basically. So she was very excited about this opportunity. And you were exactly right. She's able to use her skills. So what happens is the client comes in to use one of the dolls, and it has a pre-built persona that she created, gave the dolls names, likes, dislikes, interests, things like that. And the person knows all of this coming in, but there are microphones and speakers in the room so that the person, the sex worker in an off-site room can hear what the person is saying, see what they're doing, and then speak to them as though they are speaking from the doll's perspective. So in that sense, they are doing sex work, right? It's kind of like um, like a call line. You're moaning, you're saying names, you're expressing pleasure, but then also using this interaction as an opportunity to talk about issues like consent, what feels good. It was a really interesting case study. It also led to some really interesting questions about personification and what does it mean to, for example, have a doll that looks like an Asian person. The sex worker that I interviewed for this case study did not feel comfortable personifying that doll because she felt that it was basically a digital blackface. And so they needed to find an Asian sex worker to personify that doll and build out its persona and then interact with clients accordingly. So there's all these kind of other new interesting questions that became important for the proprietors of this brothel. Yeah, this is utterly fascinating to me. (laughs) You know, prior to reading your paper, I had never heard about this brothel and how it worked. And so this is just a really unique form of sex work. And as you say, it is it's still work, you know, it's it's doing all of the emotional labor of sex work just without that physical interaction component with the client. And I've spoken with a number of sex workers on my study abroad courses where they talk about how they kind of feel like they're sex therapists in a lot of ways because there's a lot of communication that happens with their clients and the clients want to talk to the workers. It's not just this physical interaction. I mean, sometimes it is, especially if you're talking about a place like Amsterdam's Red Light District, where that's really sort of the quick service version of sex work, where it's sort of get in, get off, get out, you know, as fast as possible. And people are in there for like five or six minutes on average, right? There's not a lot of communication that can happen in that span of time. But a lot of sex workers, particularly those who work as escorts, are spending these very prolonged periods of time with the clients. There's a lot of communication and interaction. And so for somebody working at Cyberothel, they're leveraging all of those communication skills that they built through years of working as a sex worker. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just to add on to that point, I think that one of the things I was surprised to learn was that 
some of the clients that would come into Cybrothel experienced similar issues around arousal and getting erect and feeling comfortable that human sex workers experience with their clients in person. And so having that added layer of having the sexual interaction with this person who's you know, maybe frustrated with the situation because they can't get erect or something. You know, that's something that an escort has familiar experience dealing with and talking to those clients and helping them think through why is this happening? It's okay. You know, we can still have a good experience together. So they're very much drawing on that experience as sex workers to make this work. Yeah. And that, you know, having that connection to another person is often a big part of what motivates people to hire a sex worker in the first place. You know, again, it's not just about physical gratification for a lot of people who are patronizing sex workers. They are specifically looking for someone that they can talk to or connect with. And that is something that may feed into arousal. It might meet deeper needs that they're looking for at that particular point in time. And you also mentioned that important point of how that communication, the talk, could also maybe help some people who might have performance difficulties in that particular situation. So what do we know about who visits a place like Cybrothel? I mean, I think people would assume it's entirely men, but in your paper, for example, you talked about a heterosexual couple that came in because they wanted to see what a threesome might be like. And it was because the wife in that situation was actually more interested in exploring that than her husband was. And I thought that was uh, fascinating. So tell us a little bit about the clientele for a sex doll brothel. Empirically, we know very little. Again, because these you know, are often clandestine locations that only exist for maybe a couple of months to a year at a time before they're shut down, it's really hard to do systematic research on the clientele. But it does seem to be a little bit more diverse than users. So as we talked about on a previous show, a lot of people who actually own sex dolls are men. But the people who visit brothels tend to be more so interested in just trying it for the sake of trying it as a maybe one or two off experience. And so I think because of that experimentation side, we're seeing more women who might be interested in trying it, couples who are interested in trying it, LGBTQ people who are interested in trying it, just to see what it's like. And they're not so invested in maybe a substitute partner or bringing somebody into a relationship long term. It's just a this could be interesting to try. Here's a good way to do it. Yeah. And you make a really important point there about, you know, the difference between somebody who might own a sex doll versus somebody who might visit one of these brothels. Those are likely, you know, there's going to be some overlap between the populations, but they're really catering to different needs. You know, as we talked previously about when it comes to owning your own sex doll, there are lots of issues there in terms of maintenance and upkeep and cleaning and also the dolls being very heavy and you know in terms of like moving them into different positions that can be difficult for somebody to do because they're just such heavy <laughs> pieces of machinery right now when it comes to visiting a brothel somebody's kind of doing all that work for you and that's what you're paying for in that situation so it could cater to some people who maybe just kind of want to try it out some people who are just looking for a novel experience or people who want to enact a fantasy or explore their sexuality so it's a really different kind of way of interacting with the technology when it's in that brothel format. And so it makes sense that it would appeal to a more diverse group of people. So what does it cost to visit Psy Brothel or another sex doll brothel? You know, roughly what could someone expect to pay? 
what are they getting? And, you know, how does that compare to rates for in-person sex? You know, I don't have exact numbers for you. My research on Cybrothal and from talking to people who are a part of Cybrothal has found that price has been something they've had a really difficult time fixing and they keep actually having to change it because there's all of these different price considerations that they didn't realize they would have to calculate into their business model. So, you know, the dolls break down over time at a rate that is probably faster than someone who owns one personally, because each time you clean it, you have to apply some sort of lubricant to the material. You usually have to powder them to keep them from getting tacky. So the dolls break down. There's repair costs there. They have to spend a lot of money on lube. They have to rent out the flat that they're using for this location. Plus, they keep buying new models to add different persona, and then they have to pay themselves and the sex workers who work for them. And so I think that it's actually probably pretty comparable, if not even more expensive, to visit Cybrothel than it would be to have an interaction with somebody, like you said, at the Amsterdam Red Light District or another in-person sex worker. Yeah, I just pulled up the rate sheet here because you can see it all on their website. And so... You know, there are a couple of differences when you're visiting a sex doll brothel versus, you know, hiring an in-person sex worker. One is that for a place like Cy Brothel, you have to schedule an appointment. You know, this needs to be planned in advance. The room, the doll needs to be ready and prepped and all of that. So there's a lot of this preparation and then also the maintenance you mentioned that goes into it. And so it looks like the minimum you can book it for is 30 minutes, but you can also buy it for an hour or for several hours, you know, depending on what it is that you're looking for. So you do have to kind of commit to a longer period of time than for some, you know, versions of in-person sex work. And the rates kind of start at for 30 minutes, 60 to 70 euro uh, versus, you know, an hour will run 110 or 120 euro. And, you know, it also depends on what are the modifications, the additions that you might want. You know, do you want the AI voice component to it? Or do you just want access to the doll? And, you know, these things all differ in terms of their cost. So pricing is highly variable. But my sense of it, just kind of looking at the price sheet, is that it is a bit more expensive than in-person sex, at least compared to a place like Amsterdam's Red Light District. I know from talking to sex workers there through my study abroad courses that the average going rate is about 50 euro for 15 minutes. Average client, again, only spends about five to six minutes with the sex worker in that case. But, uh, you know, for the brothels, people do tend to be paying this higher fee and that's covering all the maintenance and other things that go into it. Now, one concern that's often raised about sex doll brothels is the issue of cleanliness and hygiene because the same doll is being used over and over again. So do you have any sense, you know, from talking to people who work at these brothels, you know, what kind of steps that they take to ensure safety for visitors? I think an important point to consider here is that there's two main genital configurations for sex dolls. You can have a built-in genital configuration or you can have an attachment configuration. So built-in means that uh, either the vagina or the penis is a permanent part of the doll, which is a more pleasurable experience, but a considerably more difficult experience for cleaning. It requires that you douche it and pick it up entirely versus the, the other configuration you can actually remove the genitals, wash those separate, and put them back in. 
at least in Cy Brothel's case, they wash the entire doll every time, inside and out, with a special disinfectant. It usually involves them bringing it into the shower, and so the person is basically showering with the doll uh, in order to be able to clean it. So it's a pretty laborious process. But different brothels might be using different configurations to suit their needs. If the removable type is easier, then they might be using those and just cleaning those parts and not the whole doll. You know, especially if they don't know what people are actually using the doll for when they're in there. Yeah. So it's going to depend a lot on the specific establishment, the types of dolls they're using. And you make a good point about how these dolls are all different in terms of genital configuration and whether you can swap them out. Um, but that also goes to you know, some of the other ways that people design these dolls, which is that people can kind of customize them to meet their fantasy. And the dolls aren't necessarily always female-bodied. Sometimes they're male-bodied. Sometimes they might have male and female anatomy. They're, they're customizable in a lot of different ways to meet people's fantasies. Now, Talk to us a bit about some of the ethical concerns and dilemmas surrounding sex doll brothels. You explore this a bit in your paper, such as the potential for reinforcing pornified sexual scripts and promoting unrealistic body ideals in terms of dolls' proportions. Uh, then there's that racialized aspect that you brought up previously, you know, where if you had a white sex worker voicing a non-white doll... You know, there are concerns about that. And then also about, you know, consumers who might be fetishizing dolls that appear to reflect a specific race. These are all complex issues. So just tell us a little bit about some of the ethical concerns in this area. You know, one of the core problems that the proprietors of Cybrothel have been facing is they have a vision and they have a desire to have a feminist-oriented experience that prioritizes mutual pleasure, consent, respect, bodily autonomy, is LGBTQ inclusive, and all of these other ideals that are a part of that. That vision is not the most profitable vision, unfortunately. And a lot of the more profitable versions of a sexual brothel that people are wanting or using or expecting are these more pornified stereotypes that are very masculine-oriented, heteronormative. And so it's a constant negotiation between we want to espouse these values, we want to practice these values, but we also have to make money. And so how do we toe that line of creating a persona that has elements that will be attractive to the average customer who might be objectifying them, but then try to weave in just subtle little nods towards issues of consent or pleasure or these other more feminist issues. Yeah, that's such a fascinating discussion that you have in the paper about all of this. You know, when your own sexual ideals, your vision that you want to put out there into the world comes up against capitalism, you know, sometimes those things are in conflict and it can be hard to make that work. That's something that a lot of people who are makers of ethical porn struggle with is that, you know, they have this vision for pornography that they want to put out there, but that might not be the most profitable way of doing porn because consumers might want something else. So yeah, there is that interesting conflict and tension and how do you best navigate that where you're not compromising your values just to make money, but you need money in order to survive and keep the business afloat. So it's this really delicate dance in a lot of ways. 
Now, it's very easy to talk about the negatives of things like sex dolls and sex doll brothels. People tend to you know, focus on that a lot in popular media discussions. But what are some of the potential positives of them? So you talked about how the owners of Cy Brothel have this you know, feminist, LGBTQ affirmative approach to the way that they're running their business. So tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of what are the opportunities here for promoting healthy sexuality and inclusiveness, developing communication skills? What are the potential positive sides? Yeah, I mean, I think Cybrothel in particular is well positioned to change the conversation around sex doll brothels because it's one of the rare opportunities where there are so few of them and we really don't know that much about them that I don't think the stereotypes are particularly well ingrained yet. And so if Cybrothel and other businesses that follow their model, as I hope they do, because Cybrothel has proven that this can be a profitable way to do this. If more of these brothels take this sort of model on of listening to sex workers, bringing in sex workers' perspectives, employing sex workers, and offering this vision for what a sex doll brothel could be, it might have the potential to change ideas around sex dolls and human intimacy and needs more generally, because it's really not something that people have much exposure to or have you know, that, again, deeply ingrained negative experiences with, because it is so rare. Yeah, it definitely is. Now, I wanted to talk for a moment about legality issues surrounding all of this. Now, I know you're not a lawyer, and I know that when it comes to something like laws surrounding sex work and prostitution, you know, these things vary tremendously around the world. For example, within the United States, prostitution is illegal everywhere, save for a few counties in Nevada. If you start looking at the world more broadly, there's a lot of variation. Some places it's legal and government regulated. Some places it's partially decriminalized, meaning you can sell sex, but you can't buy it. In other places, it's fully decriminalized. So it's just kind of an open market. So going into the complexities of how sex work is legally regulated around the world is beyond the scope of what we can do. But how does something like a sex doll brothel fit in? Like, would this be legal in a place where traditional in-person sex work is illegal? Could you do something like Cybrothel in a place like that because the sex worker isn't physically interacting with the client? What are your thoughts there on that that sort of legal status of this? Oh, yeah. There's a whole host of legal problems. Uh, you know, one of the core problems that sex doll companies in general face, and anyone who would want to use sex dolls in any sort of business venture, whether it's uh, remodeling businesses or repair businesses or sex doll brothels, is that a large number of these dolls are manufactured in Asian countries. And the Asian countries make them look like young Asian women because there is a fetishization of, of young women, generally speaking. And the age of consent laws in many Asian countries are different from, say, North America or Australia. And so the dolls really toe this line of being childlike. And when it becomes too childlike, either because it's too short or it's too young-looking, then it crosses into child pornography. And so a lot of the legislation that has occurred around these issues stems from whatever country 
laws they have in place already against child pornography. So Australia, for example, is a good case because they've probably done the best job, depending on how you define best, of restricting importation of sex dolls. They really, really, really make it hard to import them into the country, and they have very clear guidelines around, this looks too much like a child, we can't have it. And so anything that looks too young, or you know, often the way that they conceive of young is being too short, that's going to be an immediate barrier and an immediate way for countries to legislate around it. Now, on the user side, one of the interesting problems is that many users want small dolls not because they look like children, but because they're easier to manipulate. Um, so this goes back to the material considerations that we were talking about, how they're heavy, they're hard to use, they're hard to put in different positions. And so having a smaller doll makes it easier for the user experience, but it makes uh, legislators nervous that it crosses this line into child pornography. Then, once you get over that barrier, you have the whole consideration of sexual services. Is this more like creating pornography? Is this more like uh, a sexual wellness opportunity? Most places decide that it crosses some sort of obscenity lines, whether it's because it's full nudity, whether it's because people are actively orgasming in the premises and they're paying for that opportunity versus being paid to do it, right? which is what pornography is, is more about. So a lot of places are landing on the side of, we don't want this. Yeah, fascinating, very complex legal landscape surrounding all of this. And, you know, it goes back to why it's hard for these places to stay in business or to even make a go of it, because you might also have broader issues with just even having sex dolls brought into the country, you know, depending on what the laws are around all of that. So thanks for bringing up all of those points and, you know, highlighting how complex this is. Now, we're running short on time, but I have one last question for you, which is what you think the future holds with respect to sex doll brothels. You know, there's always going to be that sort of looming threat of legislation. What do you think the future holds? Do you think we're going to see more of them? Do you think that eventually it'll become the last form of sex work, as some people have predicted, you know, where that's going to be the, the direction that people want to go when they pay for sex? What are your thoughts on the future? I don't think that it will be the last form of sex work. I just think that there is such a huge demand for sex work that there is no way that it is possible for sex doll brothels to encapsulate all of the diverse needs and fantasies and desires of people. People like to talk about how they're safer, how they can be more profitable, but there's always going to be that human element of whether they need something quickly, or they need something that a robot can't provide, or they need something that a doll can't provide. And so the idea that it's the last form of sex work seems to fall flat for me. But I do think the future of them is going to be a troubled one. Regular brothels and pornography are still and constantly under legislative threat, and there's a huge amount of stigma around that. And I don't necessarily see sex doll brothels being able to surpass the acceptability of pornography, given how widespread pornography already is. So I think that we will see more of them, and people will certainly try to continue to open them. But they're always going to be playing catch up to these other forms of sex work that are much more established and have a longer history. 
Yeah, I would say I share a pretty similar view with you in that, you know, these things are likely to coexist, you know, having sex doll brothels and in-person sex work because they are meeting and catering to different types of needs, maybe different types of people. I wouldn't view it as, you know, sex doll brothels are the future of sex work. They might be a form, a growing form of sex work in the future. But you also raise that important point of, you know, there are lots of barriers to the extent to which it can grow, you know, legally and otherwise. And if you think about just what's going on in the world of pornography legislation right now, there are lots of efforts underway in the United States and around the world to restrict access to porn. And so as that's happening, that's only going to make it harder for something like a sex doll brothel to pop up and to survive and stay afloat when you have just that very strong anti-porn sentiment in general. So it'll be fascinating to watch in the future, but I think your predictions here are spot on, but maybe I'll have to have you back in the future so we can see whether or not they hold. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe one day Cybrotha will be franchising and they'll be everywhere like McDonald's. <laughs> maybe that would be a fascinating future so thank you for this amazing conversation ken it was a pleasure to have you here can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work absolutely so again my name is ken hansen i'm an assistant professor of sociology at the university of wyoming you can find my work in a number of academic journals symbolic interaction deviant behavior current sexual health reports but probably the best way to get a hold of me is on twitter which is at ken underscore r underscore hansen hansen spelled h-a-n-s-o-n and thank you so much justin for having me on the show it was a real pleasure talking to you Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here, and I'll be sure to include links to everything you mentioned in the show notes. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.